everyone. Thanks so much for, for being here. Um, I'm Tatiana Sirisano. I'm a music industry analyst and consultant at Media Research. Um, and I'm really excited to moderate this panel today because I think the topic at hand, uh, mass music creation, impacts every single person in this room, in this, in this bigger room, um, whether you're uh, an artist, whether you're an industry professional working at a label, a streaming service, a distributor, uh, or whether you're simply a fan. Uh, I think this, this is really at the heart of what the, the questions uh, that determine the future are all about. Um, so to that end, we have a pretty well-rounded group of, of panelists here joining us. Um, and I'd love if you each could introduce yourselves. Um, you want to start? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm William Gruger. I'm on the global music programs team at TikTok, and I work with artists in the industry and in helping them find audiences and grow their music on TikTok. Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Meng. I'm the CEO, co-founder of BandLab Technologies. Uh, some of you guys may be familiar with BandLab, the platform. It's something that allows people to make and share music all around the world. Today, we empower over 60 million creators around the world to make music, a lot of next-generation artists. Uh, and, and you may know some of the other, other platforms as well, such as Reverb Nation, Airbit, and Cakewalk, which we acquired over the years. So, you know, excited to be here and part of the conversation. Hey, everybody. I'm Stephen White. I'm the Chief Product Officer at Empire. We are a fiercely independent label, publisher, and distributor based in San Francisco. Awesome. Um, so to kick things off, I think that we would all probably agree that uh, the barrier to entry for music making has been lowering. That's not necessarily new. Um, it's been happening for a while, but it feels like we're in a different era now where the volume of new music is just accelerating super rapidly. You have 100,000 songs on reaching DSPs, uh, brand new every day. So it feels like something has changed. So I want to start with, you know, what has changed to really open the floodgates now and... Uh, why is this important to talk about today? And I, I kind of wanted to start this, uh, this one with you, Meng, um, since you, <laughs> we won't bite, um, since you, you know, you, you're, you're involved in the very start of the creator journey. So what's, what's changed? Yeah, so I, I think what has changed is obviously, you know, slightly biased, but I believe tools like BandLab have really changed the game for music creation, and that's a big part of what the influx is happening today. You know, we think the influx is just really beginning, um, you know, and one of the things that when we think about what's actually changed is the change in the shift from even laptop music making to the world of mass mobile music creation, right? And so when you think about the democratization of music creation of tools like BandLab and what we're able to do, you know, a big part of what has been done before and what had empowered people on mobile, which made a start of that shift, was tools like GarageBand. But one really interesting stat that people forget is that 80% of the world uses Android. And, you know, today out there in the world today, 80% of the world outside of BandLab has no tool to actually make music accessible, free, and be empowered to express their creativity because they didn't or they couldn't afford an iPhone. So, I think this is a big part of the shift that we're seeing is also the tools being in the hands of every single person. No longer do you have to go to a music store or a guitar center to buy a musical instrument. Everyone has their very first musical instrument in the palm of their hands. And this is now good enough to make it to the charts, to have billboard charting hits with songs that are just made on your phone. Yeah, and, and it kind of even includes consumers too, right? Like, William, you can probably speak to this, how oh, yeah. consumers are almost part of the new distribution arm. Yeah, I mean... We've seen over the past three years, right, TikTok really become the platform for artists to build fan bases and interact with their fans. And I think one of the really interesting ways that that's impacted the creation process is that, you know, if you think back to like the early 2010s, artists started getting on social media, they really started to share their journey in their lives. 
you know, what they're doing in a day, right? But now, through a lot of the features on TikTok, the duet features, the comment features, the reaction types, we can see songs being created in real time in the For You feed. And those songs then get create, actually distributed and chart on Billboard. You know, a great example is Charlie Puth's light switch, right? Charlie Puth is great at posting on TikTok. He posts little snippets of ideas, and he builds these songs piece by piece right in the For You page in front of fans. And so these interaction platforms really give fans a whole new level of engaging with their artists and developing meaning relationships with their artists. Right. So not only do you have so much new music out there, but you have people contributing to spreading it all over the place um, and, and contributing to it. Stephen, do you have anything to add to this? I think those are all good points. I think the, the distro piece is also, <clears throat> I think, an important one. We have <clears throat> open platforms now that anybody can distribute their, their content. So you don't have to you know, go through that gate, that gated process of being kind of invited in. It's all open now and anybody can distribute content out into the world. Yeah. And... Because of all of this, some the kind of sentiment that I'm, I get from a lot of executives that I speak to is the traditional playbook just doesn't work anymore. It's kind of out, out the window, and we have to figure out new ways to evolve in this world. So I kind of want to start by just clarifying what did the traditional playbook actually look like, and then how is that changing in response to all of these shifts? Um, I'm happy to start there. I think you know the traditional playbook, it, we used to take a very kind of similar approach for each release, where you know, you'd you work with the artist and you'd build a plan around a release. That plan typically included a marketing budget, an advertising budget, a certain PR strategy. And to some degree, it was a little bit cookie cutter. You could take some of those same things and apply them release after release after release, especially if they were working. Today, every song is a snowflake. And you really just, you can't take that approach anymore because you don't know when the moments are going to happen that propel a piece of content into some level of popularity. And, and the approaches to get it there are not all the same. It depends on the piece of content. So, you know, it's, it really, it's made us have to be much more nimble as an industry. And I think what you're seeing, some of the reason you see independent labels doing so well right now is because we're able to be much more nimble than the big ships of the majors. We can turn faster. We can read the signal a little bit better and, and be able to react and change our approach depending on what's happening. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there's some fundamental shifts, you know, in the same way that, you know, mobile music making is no longer just a novelty. It's actually a necessity. You know, when it comes to what's happening with a traditional playbook, the, the reality is that there is no playbook anymore, but there is still one winning play, which is to build a real fan base and a real active fan base. And I think that's where, you know, the consumption platforms like TikTok are doing an incredible job of showing the fans what exactly is happening with the creators, putting it in front of them and also giving them the chance to interact. And that interactivity is actually something that spins off really, really exciting opportunities. But because there is no cookie cutter playbook, as, as Stephen was saying, that's actually a huge opportunity for the more creative artists, for the more creative labels. It makes it harder if you just follow you know, what you thought was the rule. But because there are no rules anymore, there are so many different ways to build audiences, so many different platforms, TikTok, Discord, BandLab, SoundCloud, et cetera. You know, it, it's really an exciting time. And every artist that may not have fit into another platform in the past can still find a platform for works to, that works for them. And I think that's something that's really empowering and, and accessible and great for the creatives uh, that are out there in the world. 
yeah, I mean, a great, a great example of even like a tip-top artist who is embracing this kind of interaction is Lizzo, right? So, you know, as much time as she spends on TikTok promoting about damn time, duetting people that are doing the dances, she's also, you know, trying out the latest food trend. Like, there's things that are on that platform beyond just music, and her as an artist embracing those things that the community is doing um, leads to more people finding her music because she's not just on there trying to use it as a marketing vehicle. Yeah, no, and another point kind of related to all of this is I feel like there's just kind of less of a mainstream these days as well. And that's part of the the thing with the traditional playbook, right? It's not just, you know, you put a song on radio and it's immediately a, a hit for everyone. These days, there's more smaller hits for individuals, it feels like. There's way more hits, but they don't go, they, they go deeper rather than further. Um, so I wonder if that's something you could talk to as well, William, because I know you're probably familiar with, I mean, you're definitely familiar with the many subcultures on TikTok. I think that's totally. a big part of this. Yeah, I mean, in this in this job and working at this company, it's, it really truly is like the more I know, the less I know. Every day there's some new artist trend niche I've never even heard of. Um, the funk genre, Stephen, we were talking about that earlier. Uh, these are... Um, Beat producers, uh, mostly in Ukraine and Russia, like making beats that are used by gamers making clips in America. And so it's just, A, shows the impact of a global platform like TikTok, but it's this unique sort of under-discovered genres that are able to find these really unique communities that are present on TikTok. And some, some of those artists are now top 50 artists in the world. I mean, they've become, they've gone from a very obscure genre to, you know, broad, broad, acceptance it's still not hitting kind of mainstream if you ask everybody in the room if you know what funk is and by the way it's p-h-o-n-k funk um you know most people wouldn't know but what they're doing is they're taking these beats and taking these old memphis hip-hop songs and sampling these vocals and creating this it's kind of like drift uh they call it drift music because they use it for when they're driving drifting um but it's a whole kind of subculture around it and we see that kind of across the board. I think what's really important as a label is to be authentic and to tap into these kind of subgenres and things that are happening in an authentic way. And that's hard um, because they are relatively small at first. They tend to be very regionalized. You know, we were talking before about Detroit, the hip hop scene there, which is called Coke White Buffs. No one would know what you know, most people here don't know what that is, but it's a type of sunglasses that they wear, right? And it became a whole genre. So you, you got to kind of, you got to look for these things. You have to have people on the ground in these, you know, in different parts of the world to find these little micro genres. And then you have to, you know, kind of authentically engage with the community to get involved. That's the only way you can be successful with it. But it's great for artists because anybody and any new thing can find the light of day, right? It's, it's really interesting. I think, you know, we don't live in a one master world anymore. And I think we see that even on existing single masters, it's not just before we even get to different genres or remixes, you now have every single song and every single BPM and every single key and every single permutation of that in between. So when you get out to the genres like funk or, you know, plug and B, these things are also so fluid, right? And I think one of the, the, the most fun things when you see like even major artists start releasing a funk remix or a plug and B remix the best thing is going in the comments and everyone's like, this isn't funk. <laughs> you know? So I think that's one of the biggest challenges as well is how do you keep up? It's, it's one of the biggest challenges out there in music. But again, it's very exciting because that broadcasting to narrow casting just gives so many more opportunities to artists and empower so many more people to find their audience, find their voice and find the community. 
Yeah, I was just going to say the one thing we still have a real challenge with is user interface. And, you know, we're dealing with small, relatively small screens. And so despite the fact that there's more and more content than there's ever been, the discovery process is still limited to this small screen, right? So part of the issue we have is how do you, in a world where you've only got so much real estate, how do you bring this stuff to people? How do you get it to them? And that's where you know, things like TikTok's algorithms and the For You algorithms really have become so important and such a huge part of how people discover music today. Yeah. No, it feels like a, a common thread through all of this is just about building from the bottom up instead of top down these days. So in that way, like how, why is building a, a really strong core fan base starting to become even more important today for artists? Uh, I mean, I, I think if you have that kind of core foundation uh, as an artist, it's, it gives you something that you can build upon. Um, so you, you kind of know coming out the gate that you have a certain level of support. I think that's always really helpful. Um, but I don't know that you have to have that. I mean, I think what we're finding is smaller artists, even with a tiny, tiny fan base, can, you know, can, can generate attention and can, and can build from there. So I think building fan base is about, you know, being mindful of who your consumer is. It's just good business. Um, and so I th it's, it's, it's the right place to start. Yeah, I think, I think building from the ground up is a key part on how emerging artists can build community on, on an app like TikTok. I think a lot of artists try to look at TikTok, look at what success on TikTok looks like, and reverse engineer a viral trend. Right? How do I, you know, how do I get something that's mass adopted? How do I get a dance trend? But oftentimes, a much easier way to think about it is, you know, if I'm a bass player, I can find a drummer to duet with. If I'm a singer, I can find someone that plays piano to uh, play over. Then you meet musicians and. Um, and, and start to really actually build that community. Um, a great example of this is the open verse challenge phenomenon that really hit the TikTok platform in the past year. Uh, really started by Stacey Ryan and Sadie Jean, uh, a rapper Zy1K got on, rapped over some of their songs that they put out, and now he's signed to Columbia Records. So those are the real type of, you know, from your bedroom to a major label deal stories that we would love to see on the TikTok platform. And for sure, you know, building from the bottom up is necessary because everyone starts with zero fans, right? Everyone starts with zero followers. And I think, you know, back to the point about the winning play still being having an active community, the old adage of a thousand core fans is more true today than ever before, in my opinion, especially with so much music to you, the point you made about the influx of new content. It's happening so much more every single day that distribution is not the problem, it's differentiation. And so, you know, passive listening and massive passive listening may get you a record deal, but an active fan base, an active community can actually get you a career. So I think that's something, the sustainability of emerging artists is something we care a huge amount at BandLab. And I know, you know, from a label system to the consumption platforms, that's so core to sustainability of platforms in the long tail. So it's just a key, key thing that we all have to care about. Yeah, no, I love the way that you put that. Say that again. Distribution is not, it's, it's not the, Yeah, distribution is not the problem anymore. It's differentiation, right? Yeah. You can upload anything, anytime. It's just how do you make it, how do you make it seen? How do you make the TikTok algorithm care about you? And, and, and you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's great because that's a great segue because I wanted to ask about how, yeah, the problem is no longer distribution. Anyone can get their music out there. Now it's how do you get it heard? So how does that change the role, Stephen, of a traditional distributor? What do you have to kind of do differently these days? I mean, we, ha- we have to set expectations, first of all, because you are dealing with very limited screen, very limited playlist placements. While there are tons of, pl- of playlists out there, there are really kind of few that are meaningful to an artist. So you have to really set expectations with artists. We can't guarantee you that we're going to get you on these these things because there's more and more competition for them every single day. We also have to create better tools <clears throat> so that artists have visibility into where is their music being played? You know, if if consumption is happening in certain small areas, whether it be regionally, whether it be certain demographics, we need to be able to tell an artist that so that they can double down on those audiences and really invest in those audiences. And then the the last piece is really helping them understand how they're what pieces of content are doing well because you can put content out so quickly today. You know, like the creation process is much, much faster. The distribution process is much, much faster. The reaction time in terms of seeing whether fans like something or not is much, much faster as well. So all of that kind of contributes to the tools we have to give artists to really help them understand what's happening and then do our best to get stuff placed as, as much as we can. Yeah. No, it goes back to the fandom element as well, right? Because it's it's not even it's not getting your music out there. It's not even breaking through. It's sustaining interest these days. I think you can have a viral moment, but you need to be able to sustain that. So it kind of goes back to all the fandom stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah, I, I think I think exactly Stephen's point about the real estate that you see on the phone. There are you know visibility, viewability, UX challenges of how much you can show. There are literally limitations in how much you can actually show on a page or curate or show in a playlist. Right. So I think with that, one of the biggest challenges in platforms like Spotify or traditional DSPs is that someone, an emerging artist going on is not just competing against all the music that came in history, but they're also competing against Lizzo and Charlie Puth and everyone out there at the top of their game. And that's where, you know, platforms like BandLab that care about the social network side and TikTok, for example, when you can actually share more about the artists, you know, what Lizzo likes to try in terms of different foods, you can build more of a personality and again, differentiate the creator beyond just the content they put out. So it's that focus on creator versus content and helping to tell the story, which is how you actually differentiate beyond. And that's where those core fans become the amplifiers, right? Where they're pushing your music out for you and bringing new fans into you as an artist and doing that work that otherwise, you know, before you might have tried to do through marketing campaigns or advertising campaigns, that today you really want to push as much of that to social and to some of these kind of fan bases as possible. Yeah, and those those tools allow for experimentation and allows people to, to, to try out and kind of sample and see, you know, do I have an audience for this? I think a really mainstream success that I'm sure everyone in this room is familiar with is Pink Panther S. She was an artist that, um, she, I don't think she finished the song she put out initially. She was just putting out little snippets and those went massively viral, huge amount of success. Um, and it also kind of speaks to niche genres and sound pockets, you know, drum and bass, um, a little lo-fi. Those aren't, genres that you typically see on the top of the billboard charts. Um, but that sound really resonated so well with how her fans interact with her on TikTok. Um, and it's led to the career and you know, she's about to top the charts. You know, we'll see. Saw her last night. She yeah. was great. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else at that show? No? Yeah, I see hands. There you go. Um, 
but I, so we've talked a lot about um, newer artists and what their challenges are, but I think it's also interesting to think about how uh, legacy artists can still compete in this world. Like, what are the opportunities for catalog when there's so much new music coming out every single day? Yeah, I mean, on TikTok, it has really revolutionized the way that catalog artists and or catalog tracks and legacy, I use that in quotes because, you know, everyone's still around these days, um, really can find new audiences and new fans. Um, whether it's, you know, superstars like Sierra having her old catalog going to Destiny's Child's Bills, Bills, Bills. There at Fleetwood Mac, everyone remembers the moment of, you know, drinking cranberry juice on the skateboard, leading to a resurgence in popularity amongst dreams. Um, it really does prove that, um, you know, music is timeless. And while so much of the industry is really, really geared towards frontline catalog releases, let's get that playlist placement, let's get that Spotify cover, um, you know, TikTok, these songs can find new contexts through um, new ways of being used. Um, I think my favorite example as of recently is Metallica. Uh, that huge sync from Stranger Things um, led to Master of Puppets going viral on TikTok. They played the clip in real life um, during their show at Lollapalooza. Um, but it was really great because it led to a surge in new fans for Metallica. Um, sh so much show so that um, <laughs> that James Hetfield had to actually post a video. Uh, I think some of the older sort of metalheads were sort of uh, gatekeeping Metallica a little bit from the newer Gen Z Stranger Things fans, and so they he had to be like, guys, Metallica's for everyone. Everyone, be nice. Yeah, be, um, be nice to the new Metallica fans. Yeah, exactly. But we we talked about this a little bit before too. What what's also happening there is you've got this whole new set of fans that only knows thirty seconds of the song, which is okay. Um, it, it still brings some visibility and brings a new fan in. But you know they they know that one piece that they've kind of learned on TikTok. You see these concerts where the entire you know audience will sing the thirty seconds and then doesn't you know really know what to do with the rest of the song. Um, but it 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 really. In the last, I would say, 18 months, the approach to catalog has shifted dramatically. Uh, just in terms of, of trying to find those pieces of your catalog that are getting some of that kind of activity and, and pushing those again. And whether that be reinvesting in those artists to bring them back because that catalog you know, moment typically brings a re-interest you know, in that artist and get them doing new things or pushing that content back out if it's not being, you know, being pushed at all, not being marketed, not being advertised to put some put some dollars behind it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think, you know, with catalog audits exactly as as uh, William was saying, you know, what's happening with older catalog is really exciting, but even with newer catalog and you know, sometimes what 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 is the definition of catalog, you know, songs that have seen in some ways ex extraordinary success. Um, we had a really interesting experience uh, last year, and with the intersection of where catalog and mass music creation is coming together, Jake, who is uh, playing tomorrow night at the Enemy uh, Bose C23 uh, uh, live showcase, in case anyone wants to go check it out, um, did a remix contest with us on BandLab. He put up all the stems to Golden Hour, which was one of obviously the biggest songs of the year, put it out to the community, and within two to three weeks, we had 1,500 remixes on the platform that were just unbelievable. So there were a huge amount more that were made behind the scenes. But I think this is where Catalog is really also experiencing that, that fact that it's not just a one master world anymore. Remixes, 
new versions, sped up, slowed down, interaction with fans. If you look at amazing bands like 100 Gex and how they've always put up their stems and instrumentals to the community, you know, these are things that are really inspiring and in how Catalog can interact and live longer in terms of the content. But to the really fun bit of 15, 30 seconds of amazing songs being all that kids know or people know, Imagine when they hear the rest of the song. Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically every three-minute song now is 10 times you could market that to the audience. So you've just, you know, massively multiplied your content. Yeah, and we track that really heavily on the TikTok side when there's those huge correlations with streaming. You know, Reba McIntyre, uh, Sierra, like, are just some, many, one of, a few of many artists that have, like, found huge, huge boost in their streaming catalog. Um, and it also changes the way those artists then act or react, right? Um, you know, uh, Metallica now, to go back to them, are now on their, you know, doing full sets on TikToks. You know, each of them will be playing their part and duetting one another. Um, Reba McIntyre, um, that I'm a survivor trend, she uh, joined the platform and recreated that on her own. So it really does give these artists a really fun and interesting way to, like, find new fans in a new way. Mm -hmm. I think the interpolations are also a really interesting element of this because if, we, if we're saying that it's harder to have something be mainstream, it's almost as if an interpolating a song, an older hit as a new artist is a way to tap into a mainstream that no longer exists. And I think we've seen that a lot as well, right? Like artists kind of redoing older, older hits. Oh, yeah. Like um, Miguel had one. Um, his, I'm blanking on the name of the song, but it's sped, a sped up version of it went viral. And he is jumping on that, and, and it's sort of a new meaning, right? The song was a little more emotional, and sped up songs on TikTok seem to kind of um, elicit more of like a cute or sort of fun, playful response in videos. Um, it's also sort of a format-forcing function. Um, if I'm going to do a, a fit check video or something along those lines, that's maybe only a five to ten second video, so I want that to have a nice beginning and end, and the sped up song format kind of lends itself to the song reaching a natural cadence as my short video ends. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's, I was going to say that's actually um, a good segue uh, because speaking of the sped up songs and how now that that's become, those have become a big trend on TikTok, labels are even releasing them to streaming. I was kind of wondering, uh, we drilled in a bit to how distribution has changed. I'm wondering how your companies are kind of shaking up the traditional industry and what that relationship with the traditional industry looks like? Like you're working with labels to release sped up songs. What else is different now? Yeah, I mean, I really, I think a really big part is, um, you know, kind of, I think related to what Stephen was saying earlier, how it's not really a one size fits all type of approach. You know, TikTok really is, it's like a language. It's a dialogue. There's a way that, 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 interactions happen and users communicate. And part of being successful on TikTok is understanding that language and dialogue and sort of like coming in on where the audience is. Uh, and so sped up songs are a great example of that, right? Um, but also like, you know, meeting the community where they are is a big part of that. So, so when a song takes off, when, when, when an artist will start to go, we work with them very much based on like what that content is. And, 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 it, and how we approach that really depends on what the community is doing first, more so than like a one-size-fits-all approach. And this gets back to the point I made earlier about <clears throat> authenticity, right? It's gotta, you've got to engage authentically with these fans. So some of the trends he's talking about, some of them you know, were about cancer survivorship. You know, that's a very different topic than a fit check, right? So... You know, an artist has to understand that and engage 
appropriately based on what's happening in that that specific moment. So I think what we're what we love about what TikTok's doing is they're starting to provide better tools for us. They're trying to give us better visibility into those kind of what are those movements? What's happening? What are the fans doing here? Because it, it's very, very different if it's a dance versus something that's culturally relevant versus something that's politically relevant. Whatever it might be, you have to have that context to engage with the artist the right way to get the artist to engage the right way with the fans. Right? You know, I think when it comes to sort of shaking up the traditional industry, you know, one has to define a little bit what we think of as a traditional industry. In fact, I think what some people think of as traditional industry and labels, in fact, I believe are actually more relevant than ever before. But you know, in the empowerment of mass music creation with, <laughs> with, 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 with what's happening with, um, you know, empowering people, the bit that I do believe is being shaken up that we're very excited by with BandLab, there are a, a lot of stats out there about 2.8% of women in music, uh, you know, and, and producers, or whether studies that have been done of 80, 20, 85, 15, 90, 10 male to female gender splits one of the really, really interesting stats that we've seen demographically with BandLab, which hand on heart, I'll honestly say was never part of the original goal, but something we really observed, was that we actually had a 60-40 split, 61-39 split of male-female on BandLab and female um, producers really, really having you know, a, a surge of usage on a platform like ours. And that really came from just empowering everybody as part of our common goal and the vision we had for the company. And when you do so, and you put things in the hands of the tool that everybody has, they don't have to go and buy expensive equipment or go for expensive music education, um, you know, or go to uh, different places to learn how to make music. You really empower a lot. And I think some of that is shaking up the traditional confines of gender splits in music. But then to the point of where we really believe the traditional industry is more relevant than ever, just as we said, catalog that existed before is now new to so many people around the world, but also platforms like BandLab and platforms and tools like ours, we can only help artists get to a certain level. There are still experts who really have the ears, have the experience, have the marketing savvy to really take artists from, you know, we can help them to get from zero to 20 but there are so many partners and experienced infrastructure out there that can help them to go from 20 to 100. And I think that's where the traditional industry is more ready than ever to work very well with the incoming tech companies that I don't think was necessarily the case 20 years ago, right? No, the partnerships weren't as close, you know, 20 years ago, and, and it's, it's continued to evolve. And, and I think the music industry has realized the importance of partnerships with the tech industry and the tech industry has realized how important music is, is to their platform. So I think there's a, there's a really nice synergy that's continuing to build there. Um, we think we're still relevant. We think, you know, folks that have a label can be more successful. And we're part of creating that success. It's funny. And, and Stephen will feel like I'm just saying this to him. But, you know, sometimes I get asked, what is the most exciting thing that we see in the music industry right now? And obviously I'm biased and I say BandLab is part of that. But, but... You know, outside of that, I genuinely do feel that actually labels and the traditional infrastructure is, is at one of the most exciting times, right? For better or for worse, the macroeconomic environment favors the incumbents and people who have existing infrastructure and experience. And there's so much that can be done because they recognize that change is happening. They recognize you have to be part of it and to collaborate with the upcoming platforms. And that's where really exciting things happen when the incumbents work with innovation and startups work with incumbents. And that's where real systemic change can happen. And I think we're going to see that in the next five to 10 years in a big way. 
So I'm gonna stir the pot a little bit now. <laughs> I, We're just calming the pot. <laughs> I, and I'm here to stir it up again, Meg. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think uh, there are a lot of people that wish that there were fewer creators out there and less music, including a lot of creators themselves who are now dealing with so much extra competition. Um, and speaking of labels, um, I agree with you, but I think we've also seen uh, labels start to seed this argument that uh, the long tail is clogging up the music experience. It's making it worse for artists and fans. Uh, so I'm wondering how you would all respond to that. Um, and I'm sure you all have things to say. I kind of wanted to start with you, Meng, because I know you could help us put into perspective how much music creation actually isn't even happening yet. Like we're only at the tip of the iceberg, I think, in your opinion. Yeah, exactly. I think when you, again, think about the fact that every music tech company, any music tech company out there in the creation space has always used the term democratization of music creation, right? And everyone claims to do so. Any investor, any partner, biz dev person in this room will have seen that in every single pitch deck. I'm sure if you ask ChatGPT, give me a pitch for a music tech creation company, democratization of music creation is there. But really, in our opinion, only one company prior to BandLab had done a decent job of that. And it was Apple with GarageBand for the iPhone. But again, 80% of the world simply does not have access to music creation because they don't have an iPhone. And I think the sheer amount of content, 100,000 songs a day, what we're seeing at BandLab and the hundreds and thousands of songs a day behind the, below the waterline of the iceberg of music being made is just phenomenal. It's scary. I think there is an argument for that the long tail is clogging, but actually I completely disagree. I think that, firstly, more music should be made because people around the world should be able to express their creativity. I think that's just morally and philosophically very, very important. But I think the challenge is not necessarily the amount of music being created. The challenge is actually that now it's time for the consumption platforms to catch up, the discovery platforms to catch up. How do you find better ways of finding music that is relevant to people when so much more music is out there, right? So I think creators are catching up in creation but now it's just the natural balance and the push and pull of where consumption platforms are also trying to figure out how to catch up. And that's why you're seeing TikTok trying to innovate, I'm sorry, Spotify innovate and, and SoundCloud and all the various platforms trying to innovate to keep up with you guys, obviously, but also to keep pushing that consumption and discovery forward to support the amount of music that's coming through. Yeah, I would, I would agree with your disagreement, right? In the, sense, in, the, in the sense that I think that one of the truths that these tools uh, reveal is that, you know, good music doesn't really have a supply-side problem. Like, I'll go back to, like, every day there's some new artist, new creator, new trend, new style of music that nobody can focus group uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a boardroom. Um, that's not to say that, you know, artist development doesn't have a place because it really clearly does because, you know, watching these kids come out from their, 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 their webcams and, and perform on a stage is, is, a, is a real big skill that a lot of creators have to learn as they go out and develop careers. But I think that um, having there be, like, there, there's just so many different ways uh, for, 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 for artists to find fans in different types of music out there? Is that is really what these platforms reveal? Um, yeah, I mean, I think this argument is really an economic argument being made. It's not an, an argument about artistry. Um, the idea that there are some artists that are, you know, haves and some that are have-nots is really a horrible way to, to frame, you know, creativity. I think, you know, everybody's got to be able to create. 
I think to Meng's point, it's a it's a moral you know right. Um, and I th but I do think there we do need to realize that having there only be a few platforms that control all of the consumption, having those platforms be very limited in terms of what they can actually deliver to consumers because they have limited screen space, because they have limited ability to, to put content forward, is bad for everybody. It's bad for the artists and it's bad for the consumers. Consumers have a harder time finding the things that they actually care about. Artists on those platforms, you know, of the 100,000 songs being uploaded every day, over 80% of them get zero plays. Zero. I mean, it's not even your mom, you know? <laughs> like, so you, you, we have to create better platforms, whether those be niche platforms, whether those be new ways for some of these broader sets of content to be consumed than having it all sit on one, two, three platforms in, in the world. Sounds like everyone needs better parents as well. <laughs> yeah, get your mom to listen to your song. Yeah. I mean, I also think on the other side of the complaints of, oh, there's so much music for me to compete with is the fact that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the door wasn't even open to so many artists in the first place because everything was still so gatekept. So it's like, yeah, there's things are really competitive today, but you have a shot, I think, in a way that you used to just not have at all. Yeah, the, the, the idea of gatekeeping, you know, the creativity <clears throat> and we talked about this a little bit before, but we haven't really today, that the idea of kind of traditional A&R has really changed, right? Um, A&R used to be about choosing who got that shot. And that's not what it's about anymore because anybody can get the shot. Anybody can put content up. A&R is really trying to find the folks that you think can differentiate, to Meng's earlier point. It's not about distribution. It's about differentiation. So finding that artistry that you think is different, that you think is going to resonate, you know, given what's happening with fandom. Yeah. But, but, but opening those gates and also, you know, realizing that the entry path to music creation and the industry is completely different is one of the most fascinating, exciting things that, again, are being empowered by consumption platforms and, and also something that I think everyone can benefit from. I mean, how many, how many of you guys here have heard of an artist called David D4VD or the song Romantic Homicide? Okay, so a couple, a number of hands. You know, this is an artist, a really, really cool story that came out of BandLab last year. This kid was a 17-year-old kid who had aspirations to be a professional gamer. That was his goal. He wanted to be a professional Fortnite gamer, and he was putting up clips of his gaming on TikTok and various channels, and all this stuff was getting taken down. He was getting copyright strikes. And he was, it was really sad. He was upset about it. He cried to his mom about it. And his mom, who was the most lovely lady, just the most amazing lady, she said to him, why are you crying? Just make your own music. And he Googled how to make music. He discovered BandLab. He started making music on his phone. He went into his sister's closet and started recording songs and singing along to things and started posting them on TikTok where he built his first initial following. Yep. Today, David is signed to Interscope, Darkroom, Billie Eilish's label on a multi-million dollar label deal. He has 31.5 million monthly listeners on Spotify, and his biggest song, Romantic Homicide, which only a couple of people have heard here, has half a billion plays yep. on Spotify, which is close to double what Beyonce had on Break My Soul, yeah. right? And so this is really, really incredible when you take away those boundaries. Someone who had no professional aspirations of becoming a musician or background in music today has one of the biggest upcoming emerging professional music careers and has changed his life, the life of his family, maybe generations to come, but also inspired so many people 
outside of, of, of his own circles and what he's been able to do with BandLab and, and platforms like TikTok to build his fan following. And, and I think that narrative speaks really well to the A&R process today because it's not really about signing the single anymore. Um, I, I get a lot of inbound like that, like, is the song going up? Is the song getting traction? How's it doing? And I'll always turn back, like, I don't know, like, who, how's the artist look? Like, what is their work? What is their output like? What is their community like? What is their team like? And when you look at an artist like David, you have a person that can utilize new technology, uh, you know, trying to find music for his Fortnite gaming, you know? Um, and, and that really speaks to, like, what these new audiences are sort of centered around now. But, but also to the, again, the point of the labels and, and someone like him who was, who's entered the, you know, the UMG, the Interscope, the darkroom system, you know, they still have to have the experience of understanding when is it just a single or when is it really an artist that's going to be a superstar. I was at David's very first concert in Houston. You know, he has 31.5 million monthly listeners, but his first show was to 200 people in his hometown, right? Yeah. And it wasn't just the first show that he performed at. It was the first show he's ever even attended as a fan to go to a concert. And, and the fact that he's such a superstar, his very second song where he was playing and performing, they had technical difficulties. I was right in front of the soundboard, and I could hear in the back, you know, like, crap, crap. The, you know, guitars are not working. The guitars are not working. You know, we, we need a few minutes. And the kid just breaks into a freestyle of one of his songs, and nobody notices. Nobody skips a beat. He had absolute charisma. And that was, you know, sort of why they paid the big bucks for him, because people who have the experience and the ears and the eyes and know talent when they see it. And that's something data can show you numbers, but they can't really represent the person right in front of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I have sort of a wrap up question and then um, we'll open it up to the floor. So start thinking of questions if you guys have any. Um, but I wanted to ask, what, is, what do you think is the most meaningful development you've seen thus far in terms of the industry kind of catching up to this new trend we're seeing? Or what, what would you like to see that you haven't seen yet? And bonus points if you don't talk about your own company. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we haven't talked much about rights today, but I think a lot of uh, the challenges that the industry has faced has been around metadata and rights. And I think we've seen a real kind of quantum leap in the last five years on the content ID systems that are being utilized by these companies to use audio fingerprinting and audio fingerprinting type uh, technologies, machine learning, AI, to better identify content. It's more and more important now, to Meg's point, every song has all the sped up versions, the slowed down versions, the pitch shifted versions, the pieces. So you've got you know hundreds and hundreds of different pieces for each song that have to be accounted for. And we're, we're just in a whole different world today. And this will continue to evolve as this technology continues to evolve. And platforms like TikTok are getting much, much better at finding these pieces of content and making sure that they're monetized appropriately and that the rights holders, ultimately the artists, are getting paid for their use. Um, I'll say, I'll repeat myself a little bit here and say I really think like the flattening of the release cycle and schedule is really exciting. You know, back to how marketing and promoting releases, it's not really a one-size-fits-all approach, leads to a lot of creativity in how artists and their teams approach not just new singles, but old singles, old, you know, old things from catalogs past that'll pop up. Um, and that's not really contained to one day of the week anymore as much as it used to be. So, so that's, that's something that is, is pretty exciting for me. 
Yeah, I, I think one of the big meaningful shifts, I, I, was, I was quoted on this, and it sounded like there was a stat that I'd really surveyed and researched. Um, you know, I said that, you know, maybe five years ago, five to 10% of artists would be open to all their stuff being remixed and really, you know, taken to so many different directions of their original masters, the craft and the work they spent so many hours in the studio perfecting to be taken out into many, many different versions out there in genres, remixes, sped up versions. There wasn't that much acceptance of that being something that everyone would want to do. But today, you know, I felt, and so I'm just clarifying that it was just a feeling that it's more like anecdotally 70%, 80%. There's still a, a level of artists that really understands that what they've created is supposed to be consumed in a specific format. But really, truly today, the majority of artists understand a couple of things. And this big shift is really exciting to me that artists understand that content is not finite anymore. It's, you know, it's actually fluid. Uh, you know, that content lives on a spectrum of many, many different things of genres, speeds, moods, you know, ideas. But also, more importantly, that artists also understand that they need to engage with that community in a way that isn't standing on a soapbox anymore and just shouting or delivering their content to them. They need to release all the time. They need to be out there engaging with their fans. They need to be in Discord channels with them and really building that core community. And I think that shift is only a good thing for consumers and it's only a good thing for the next generation of artists because they'll really build that support system independently or whether they're at labels, it will amplify what they do. And if one day the label says, well, you don't work for our system, it's also healthier because when they get out, they still have a fan base. They still have a community that cares about them because of tools like BandLab. They still know how to make music. I screwed up. I mentioned my own company. <laughs> Get off stage. <laughs> Sorry. Deduction. Three points. <laughs> no, no, no. That's all great. And I think we have seen an overall shift in the industry towards fandom and cultivating like bottom up. Uh, communities rather than top down. Um, so yeah, this has been a fascinating conversation as always. Thank you guys so much for your insights. Um, and I guess we'll open it up. Thank yes. You. Applause. Applaud them. <laughs> um, and we're happy to take questions. Um, I saw Dimitri's hand first. If you want to go. Hey, Dimitri Vitsa, Music Tectonics Conference and Podcast. Um, first of all, amazing moderation. If you don't follow Tatiana Sirisano, Media Research, she's a writer. They do research, incredible stuff. So tag that, make sure you're following her. She's amazing. My question is, there seems to be, I work in both sides of the industry, this music creator side and also the traditional label side. How do you, I guess, how do you talk about this, what some people in the traditional industry see as a division between user-generated music creators and career artists? And I'm curious, I get tired of explaining that there's this, these div divided worlds, or so they seem, uh, are separate, but there's this convergence. And I'm curious how you, how you sort of talk about that to bring those two worlds together. Well, clearly you're talking to major labels. That seems to be the problem. <laughs> I mean, any labels, really. Yeah. I mean, we, I think those lines are, are not so bright, in, at least internally at, at Empire anymore. I think what we consider to be an artist is less about how you got there and, and where you came from. It's more about the artistry itself. Are you creating content that's resonating with a fan base? Are you creating content that our A&R team thinks is good content? Um, so there's less of that kind of explanation happening anymore. I think a lot of that is kind of bringing the old school into the world that we're currently in and helping them explain how things actually work today. 
Um, but but once you kind of show them these platforms, like it's almost you can almost just sit them down and show them TikTok, you know, yeah. <laughs> give them 30 minutes on TikTok. And, and, you know, at least for me, it helps to have a 14 year old daughter who explains it to me. But but I think it, those lines aren't as bright, at least internally at our label anymore. And, and folks definitely do have a better understanding these days of artistry can come from anywhere. Fandom can come from anywhere. Back to our every song's a snowflake. You got to treat each one, you know, on its own merits. Yeah, I mean, TikTok very much views itself as the funnel between those two worlds. You know, uh, we, we talked about David a second ago. May Stevens is another artist. You know, for every, you know, major label signed artist who, you know, sells out arenas these days is now starting out as a creator in their bedroom making a video on their phone. And so, you know, that's 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 the, that's the connection between those worlds, you know. Yeah, I, I think this, this idea of catalog and UGC is a really, really important question and something I think the music industry is starting to wrestle with. But really, I'm a strong believer that nothing new has happened and a lot of things have happened just before in history. You know, if you look at what happened with mass photo consumption to mass photo creation or mass video consumption to mass video creation, you know, what you're seeing is that shift of catalog and the bifurcation of catalog and UGC. So in the world of art, you know, in music, a Bob Dylan song is kind of like Matisse, Monet, or a photo that Annie Leibovitch would take for the cover of Rolling Stone is very different to a photo I take of my cat or William's cat or, you know, of my dog's cute cat, right? And I think, interestingly, compared to other mediums where music is very unique, what we're not seeing, you know, is the difference between MoMA and Instagram. You don't see a photo that Kim Kardashian takes of herself or Pete Davidson takes of himself with Kim Kardashian making it to the National Gallery in the UK. But music is a very, very interesting medium and, and piece of UGC that there is mobility between UGC and catalog. You do see songs that start as UGC, go up on platforms and eventually now get signed. David Song is under Sony Publishing and a massive deal there and is now catalog. So there is actually mobility between UGC and, and, and catalog, which you don't see in a lot of other industries or other mediums of content. <laughs> you <bet. laughs> Hi, panel. Uh, I'm Mansoor. Uh, I'm a seventh generation classically trained sitar player, and I'm also an AI uh, engineer. So we founded this company called Beethoven.ai, and we use AI to make original music for content creators, specifically like videographers, podcasters. And what behavior we have started seeing is, you know, people who weren't creating music before have started creating music for specifically for content, for production music. Now, what I want to ask is, how do you believe for musicians, apart from AI being an assistive tool, what else will it, you know, help musicians with? And secondly, what do you believe will be the copyright infrastructure for AI music generation? Because even we don't know what it, what it looks like. It's funny. We, we were actually just talking about this in the green room because there's some, some things that are going to come from the copyright office pretty quickly on this point. Um, you know, I think in general, we feel like AI... Um, AI-generated content should not be copyrightable because it's not created through a creative process of a human being. Um, and I think that's a pretty important bright line to retain copyright with the creativity of the human spirit. Um, but there's no doubt that AI as a tool can be used for many things, whether it be learning how to play an instrument, whether it be learning different techniques within your play of an instrument, 
whether it be you know, riffing on different ideas that you want the AI to kind of throw back to you as you're kind of thinking about through the creative process. There's many different ways it can assist. Uh, I think the things that scare me is when it becomes the process doesn't assist the process. I think with, you know, what's happening with AI, A is very interesting, but I think fundamentally, you know, we see it as technology, right? And technology fundamentally also assists humans. And, and, and I think one simple answer is also there are gonna, it's going to be used in ways we don't realize. But at a certain point in time, a guitar was technology. If we think of more recent history, auto-tune as an algorithm is a legendary algorithm that was technology at a certain point in time, but if you look at the impact of that and how many people it empowered who didn't necessarily have the same pitch and tone and created completely new genres and styles of music and incredible artists around the world, that empowerment that's going to come from new technology is just what has, again, repeated throughout humanity. And I think that's where there is still a lot of thoughtfulness that's required because I think there are some real licensing, legality, copyright questions that you need to support creators. And, and, you know, at BandLab, we care a lot about people making and sharing music and breaking down those barriers. If you're not getting compensated fairly and people are illegally using your rights or illegally learning from your content to create AI models, that's a barrier to you making music. So I think, you know, it's a lot of legislative questions that are very interesting, but I think more importantly is it's technology that's ultimately going to empower so many more people, and that can only be a good thing. Yeah, and uh, just one other thought to add to that. Um, Meng, you, you mentioned earlier like photography and videography tools uh, being put into the hands of consumers with, with TikTok and Instagram and things, and music hasn't really had that moment yet, uh, but I think AI could really speed it up to where you know, you're, you're opening TikTok and not only are you adding the new uh, Ariana Grande song to your post, but you're also remixing the stems and adding your own vocal and then posting it. So bringing music creation into social and giving music its sort of like Instagram moment in that way, I think is another really exciting possibility for AI uh, that I think relates to a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. Hey, so um, y'all have talked about TikTok and Spotify as like discovery tools, and you've also talked about how distribution is easier than ever, and now that's not the problem, differentiation is. My question is, for small artists, where in that new journey is the most potential for monetization? Um, is it on like the social media side of brand building and name image likeness, or is it in, I, I want answers besides live music and touring in that new space where it's the most potential for monetization. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, it gets back to what we said before, is there's no playbook that works for everything anymore. So there's not one answer to that. But I think if, as we've talked about, you focus on fandom and you focus on who, who are your fans, where are your fans, where's your content resonating, and you really focus on that you know if those folks are on platform a then platform a is the platform that's important to you and that's the place where you're going to have the most opportunity to monetize if it's platform b then that's where you need to put your your time and effort but really engaging with your fan base in, in meaningful ways i think we haven't talked a lot about web3 but i think the web3 technologies have a huge part to play there you know creating things like nfts that allow your super fans to become kind of members of your team um, and giving you a way through Discord and other platforms like that to engage with them, I think is hugely, hugely important. And, and that's 
that's the recommendation I'd give you is focus on the fandom wherever it's happening. I, I think, you know, one of the big shifts is that, okay, okay, for some, for some musicians and some creators, music is still a product, but for the majority of them today, music isn't the product anymore, music is a service. The artist is the product and the creator is the product, and therefore how you monetize your product, there is no playbook anymore. You've got to find many different ways. So I think one, again, one of the most exciting things in the shift of platforms and community platforms is the addition of creator economy features and functions to every single platform, tipping, you know, subscription schemes, and your monetization, as Steven said, could be completely different places. It could be Spotify, it could be Patreon, it could be BandLab, it could be TikTok, it could be OnlyFans, right? Whatever it is, it's all about finding what works for you, and every artist is different, every artist is a small business in a way, and they're all unique in their journey. There isn't a cookie cutter anymore, and, and that, again, creates even more opportunity for people to find their niche and to find where they can monetize their fans. Um, but it's a really hard question, and, and, but today there are more tools and places than ever before versus in the past where there were only one or two routes. Yeah, you, you stole a bit of my answer there, but I think that's really good. The creator economy has really, really solidified in a way that it's not just the Addison Rays of the world getting paid the top bucks. You know, every brand now has a, a micro-influencer strategy, if you will, and that's really where the importance of having that core, dedicated fan base really comes into play. Um, you, as a creator, are worth something to that audience, and through tipping through brand partnerships, there's a lot of demand to get in front of those audiences if you have them, and they're legitimate. Yeah, and I'm just going to add um, really quickly, I, I don't think the music industry has done a great job of monetizing fandom thus far. Um, if you think about, like, on streaming, every single person is paying $9.99, uh, whether they're a super fan that wants to engage more deeply or whether they're just passively listening. So I think this is kind of answering my own question of what's the shift you'd like to see um, I think that we need more ways for these these platforms to differentiate between the casual listener and the super fan and give the super fans more ways to spend. Uh, so I think that's something that will come I, from DSPs, from these other platforms. But I, I, I want you to have more tools. I, I agree with you guys that there, there are way more tools than ever, but I think we're still not getting all the value out of monetizing fandom that we could be. Yeah, not at scale, for sure. I would... Last point on this, I would just say is do your homework and really check out some of these platforms. I mean, there's great tooling out there. You know, check out Patreon. Check out, I mean, OnlyFans has some stigma around it because of, you know, adult content. It's a great platform for monetizing fan base. Check it out. Like, don't be afraid of these things. You have to kind of dip your toe in and try them out and try, 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 try. You'll find something that works. What's your ad on OnlyFans? At Stephen White. <laughs> We'll talk about that later. <laughs> you do one more. Thank y'all so much. Um, I'm an attorney and a manager. I represent Black Star as well as Mad Lib. And, um, and I want to talk to you, talk to Brian. Um, but my thing is, like with Black Star, I don't know if y'all know who Black Star is, but it's Talib Kweli Yassin, and they just released an album on Luminary, a podcast uh, platform. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that, yep. but it created a lot of interesting situations, right? When you deal with samples and sample clearance, and the, the people who are, we're clearing the samples from want royalties, 
And it's like, we're not getting paid royalties. This is a whole new model. And then when you're dealing with new models, you deal with potentially fatigue. So that's the thing. When there are so many different options, you see consumers getting some fatigue and saying, oh, I got to sign up for another platform. I'm tired. I don't want to sign up. So how do you all feel about that in the nature of like being groundbreaking and saying, I don't want to stream at all, but going to an entirely new platform? I mean, breaking the rules is hard, right? Um, props to them for doing something really different. Um, I was frustrated because I couldn't hear the album and I'm a huge fan. I wanted to hear the, and I didn't want to sign up to another platform, but you know, I think trying these things and doing something different, I applaud them for doing that. I think artists have to do what's right for them ultimately. And the, the industry has a responsibility to respond to what the artists are comfortable with and want to try. We have to enable them to try new things and break rules and do things differently and not force them to do it the way we think they should do it. So. Amen. <laughs> Amen. All right. Well, thank you all so much. This has been great. Thanks, everyone. Thank